Okay, so we're going to talk more about the self-strengthening movement and the 1898 reform movement. I'm going to go for a lot of the information here from a book called China, A History by Harold M. Tanner. Um, and some of the details on the beginning here are going to be a little bit different, and that's because there's conflicting historical records. But let me give you the initial beginning here. Um, on October 8th, 1856, a lorcha, which is a Chinese-built western schooner, it's a type of boat with Chinese rigging called the Arrow, rode at anchor in Guangzhou Harbor. The Chinese merchant who owned the ship had obtained British registry in Hong Kong and an Irish, quote, captain of convenience. This was a common way in which Chinese took advantage of British extraterritoriality to put their ships beyond the reach of the Qing government. In this case, however, Qing forces had reliable reports that the Arrow was involved in piracy. Probably unaware of the Arrow's British registry, Qing soldiers boarded the ship and took the crew into custody while the fake Irish captain was breakfasting with friends on a nearby vessel. Some witnesses later claimed that the Qing soldiers hauled down the Arrow's British flag and flung it over the deck. Others witness, other witnesses said that the flag had not been flying at all, and some said that they took the flag down, put it on the deck, and stomped on it, and thus could not have been um, what they said, what the British claimed the ship to be. So these um, captains of convenience were guys who were not actually captains. They didn't know anything about sailing and being sailors. Um, but because they were European or American, British, or in this case Irish, you could hire them, put them on your boat, and then pretend that they were your captain while actual Chinese crewmen did the real work. Whatever the truth of the matter, the British government had already been planning a second war in China. The alleged insult to the Union Jack, which is the British flag, and the Chinese authorities' refusal to apologize were sufficient cause for the war. The British deemed it immaterial that the Arrow's British registry had lapsed or expired before the incident took place and that the ship therefore had no legal right to British protection. As with the Opium War, the real issue at stake in the Arrow War, which is another name for the Second Opium War, was the opium trade, which was still very important to both Britain and its colony in India. This time, the British, joined by the French, invaded Beijing, looted the city, burned the Summer Palace with its ornate Italian-style buildings. Um, in peace negotiations, the British, the French, Russians, and Americans collectively demanded ambassadors, uh, more open ports, a right to run ships up the Yangtze River, lower tariff taxes, another indemnity, so a big chunk of money that would be paid to them, and that the Qing promised to protect Christian religions inside the country. The Qing fought the Arrow War while still struggling with the Taiping Rebellion and other mid-19th century rebellions like the Nian Rebellion. Together, these wars sapped the Qing government's strength and brought home the lesson that it failed to take to heart from the First Opium War. The need to modernize the military. Why were they losing to barbarian states? The military was very inadequate. That was a big piece of it. From around 1860 through 1894, the Qing government embarked upon a program of self-strengthening, is what they called it. The leaders of the self-strengthening movement were the men who rose to prominence by creating new armies that defeated the Taiping Rebellion. Now, you know about one of these uh, men who created a new army. His name was Tsung Guofan. Um, we talked a lot about him. With the Taiping finally defeated, the new armies went on to assist in the suppression of the Nian, Miao, Panthe, and Tungan rebellions. Tsung Guofan's Hunan army was disbanded after the victory over the Taiping, some of its units being assigned to other armies. But Tsung himself, until his death in 1872, um, along with Li Hongzhang, Zhuo Dongtang, and other Qing generals and officials, they moved forward with self-strengthening. What, they asked, 
had made the foreigners so strong while the Qing were so weak. Strong ships and effective guns was the answer. From 1865 through 1894, Li Hongzhang playing a key leading role in this, the Qing government invested heavily in modern military equipment. They built the new Tianjin, Nanjing, and Jiangnan arsenals, uh, Fuzhou shipyard where they built modern ships, and a Western-style navy and army units. Despite Feng Guifeng's famous ships and guns formula, the self-strengthening went beyond just purely military projects. Um, it included other projects like a steamship company, textile mills, mines, a school of foreign languages. Can you ever imagine the ancient Chinese studying foreign languages? They wouldn't have done it, right? They expected the barbarians to become Chinese, not the other way around. Um, another thing they did was schools of science and te technology in Fuzhou. And in the shipyard in Fuzhou, where they were building Western-style ships, they saw the need for a better understanding of physics and science, and so they built a school within the shipyard as well. And they also started programs for sending Chinese students to America, England, and France. The government also acted to strengthen its administrative control over peripheral areas of China, like Tibet, Xinjiang, Mongolia, Taiwan. All were areas in which non-native, um, native but non-Han people might collude with foreign powers. So they wanted to control these areas because they didn't want somewhere like Taiwan where there were Chinese people living. They didn't want those Chinese people working with somebody like the French to start a coup and attack the Chinese government. Now, none of the self-strengtheners projects would have been possible without the support or at least the indulgence, indulgence of the Manchu princes and the Emperor, Empress Dowager Soxi. This powerful woman, the widow of the Xianfeng Emperor, controlled the government after her husband's death first by placing her young son, the Tongzhi Emperor, on the throne, and then when he died of smallpox, she enthroned her new nephew, uh, her nephew, the Guangxu Emperor. He would be the emperor until 1907, but he's really insignificant. So she supported Li Hongzhang, who returned the favor, but the self-strengtheners were only one of several court factions which she needed to balance against one another. So Li Hongzhang was all hardcore about saying, if we don't do the self-strengthening thing, we are going to get defeated by foreigners and we will stop existing as a nation. And she kind of gave in and she let him do some of the self-strengthening stuff, but he was just one guy in the court and this self-strengthening thing was just one idea that was being talked about. So she kind of let them do it, but she didn't really fully support it as well as it needed to be. And so she kind of also encouraged other people who had other ideas, even if those ideas conflicted, she just kind of worked with everybody. Very political kind of situation. Um, the strength of conservative factions limited the scope of self-strengthening. So too did the Qing government's financial weakness and the astronomical costs of self-strengthening projects, which relied on government funds and foreign loans. And like any government undertaking, self-strengthening enterprises were always subject to corruption. People would keep money that they should have been putting into their project. There's famously one story of a guy who started a shipyard that was going to build American-style ships, and he was keeping about half the money that was coming from the government that was supposed to be going into the shipbuilding project. He just stuck it in his pockets and got very rich as a result. Self-strengthening built the beginnings of a modern military and a modern industrial complex, but it did not make the Qing powerful enough to defend its own territory. Impressive victories in several battles during the Sino-French War were little compensation for the ultimate defeat in which the French utterly destroyed a modern naval unit of 11 Chinese-built ships in Fuzhou in less than one hour. 
Okay, so it's bad enough being defeated by the French, right? But can you imagine having your entire brand new navy you built being destroyed by the French in an hour? All right, so the French gained Qing acknowledgement of French control of Vietnam, as well as access to trade in southern China. And that is significant to us as Americans because that little French victory that gave them control of Vietnam um, results in us as Americans joining the Vietnam War um, 80 years after this. Now, a separate piece of history that is significant, in 1852, the American Commodore Matthew Perry forcibly opened Tokugawa, Japan, to relations with the West. In response to the Tokugawa shogunate's weakness, a group of samurai overthrew the shogun and set up a new government under the Japanese Meiji Emperor and put Japan on the road to modernization. Seeking its own colony, Japan fought the Qing for control of Korea, which led to the Sino-Japanese War, 1894-1895. Um, the Japanese defeated the Qing forces at sea and on land in Korea. The Treaty of Shimonoseki in 1895, um, the Qing ceded the territory island of Taiwan to Japan. So they gave it up. They paid Japan an indemnity, and they were forced to give Japan a 99-year lease on Manchuria's Liaodong Peninsula and a strategically important harbor of Lushan. Um, a diplomatic triple intervention by Russia, France, and Germany kind of stepped in and they forced Japan to back down from the last demand and not give this whole peninsula over to Japan. But it cost them a price um, because Russia demanded later that they would get access to that port where they built a city. Now, by defeat of Japan, a former tributary, this was a shock to the Chinese because Japan used to send them tribute. But now here was Japan beating them, and then taking away one of their tribute states, Korea, right? For Qing officials and their increasingly concerned Chinese subjects, the question remained, why are we so weak? And why are the Western powers, and now Japan, so strong? And that's a quiz question right there. The question that led to the self-strengthening movement. Why are we so weak? That's what they had to know. Now, the self-strengtheners had focused heavily on technology, their attitude had been to take Chinese learning as your foundation and Western learning for its application. In other words, use Western techniques to defend the Qing dynasty and Chinese civilization. A new generation was now prepared to suggest new answers, though, and the most prominent among them was a scholar from Guangzhou, which is Canton, and his name was Kong You Wei. Kang Youwei was a voracious reader and an observer of Western learning and society, and he was in yesterday's assignment, or the day before yesterday's assignment about So Xi. He was the friend of the emperor who was put under house arrest. In the 1890s, he shocked this Kang guy, shocked the scholarly world when he published a book that argued that Confucius had been a reformer and that all of the Confucian classics were actually forgeries, and that Confucius had a different translation of all the old Han classic documents and he released them in his book. Now, this kind of gave him a chance to say that it's time to reform because what he said is Confucius said that governments need to change to keep up with their times. That's the opposite of what Confucius said. Confucius said, we have eternal principles that always are true, always have been true, and always will be true. We need to stick to those principles and everything else will fall in place. But Kong used this crazy theory about the Confucian classics being a forgery to push his own book which said it's time for the government to change. Now, history has found that this guy was very, very wrong about what he said about Confucius. He was just, he was making this stuff up. Crazy conspiracy theory type stuff. 
but the emperor loved what he had to say. Um, confident that history had chosen Kong to save the Qing dynasty, Kong argued for reform in his book and in memorials which he sent to the emperor. His reinterpretation of Confucianism made him too radical for many people, but the young Guangxu emperor was impressed. On June 16, 1898, the emperor granted Kong, who was a relatively low-ranking official, an unprecedented two-and-a-half-hour audience during which he discussed reform proposals and asked Kong to continue to send him information and suggestions. Kong urged Guangxu to imitate Peter the Great of Russia and Japan's Meiji emperor, rulers who had reformed and strengthened their governments and modernized their nations. That goes back to that Matthew Perry guy who's American, basically showed up with guns in Japan and said, look, you're going to do what we say. And Japan said, okay. And they changed their government, and because of it, became very powerful. For about a hundred days during the summer of 1898, Guangxu issued a series of edicts inspired by Kong's advice. The exam system was used to questions and themes on contemporary issues instead of the old essays about Confucian. Um, so they would say stuff about science and engineering questions instead. Um, there was to be compulsory education, so everybody had to go to school with a modern Western curriculum for all children starting at the age of six. They were going to require them all to go to school. Um, they built new naval academies. They built professional schools that taught you about mining, agriculture, manufacturing, business, and railroad technology. And the government was going to be totally flipped upside down and just reorganized. At first, the Empress Dowager supported these reforms or at least she allowed them. She let the emperor do them. But when the emperor tried to create a new planning board to coordinate all the reform policies and demanded that low-ranking officials be allowed to send letters directly to the emperor, um, that's when he started to run into serious trouble. Conservatives in the government, people that didn't like change, um, they feared that this would sideline the existing institutions and the existing officials would start to lose their jobs and have trouble. So at the same time, Kanye and other reformers sought American and British support to try to make these changes. And they also got a friend lined up. His name was Yuan Shi Kai, General Yuan Shi Kai. Remember him because next week he's very important when China starts to become a republic instead of a, an empire. Um, and he was a commander of a big northern army, which was... Uh, one of the, the biggest, most powerful militias in the country. And they got him to agree to a plan in which they would start to run a coup against the Empress Dowager because the emperor knew he didn't have the real power. He only had whatever power um, Empress Dowager so she would allow him to think he had. Nothing actually happened without her okay on things. And so they started to plan this coup to kick her out and not let her be the, the Dowager anymore. So this Yuan Shi Kai, um, when Yuan chose to support his patron Su Shi instead, though, it was game over. So these guys, the emperor and his buddies, got the most powerful general they could find and made friends with him and said, hey, let's get rid of Empress Dowager Su Shi. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's totally do that. And then the general, he went behind their backs and went to Su Shi and said, hey, these guys are trying to overthrow you. So game over. On September 21st, Su Shi put the emperor in house arrest and resumed power and took over all power that the emperor had formerly had. Kong Youwei, um, the buddy of the emperor who was into all these reforms, and one of his young friends, um, Liang Qichao, they escaped to Japan, and many other officials associated with them 
were arrested and executed. They call him the Hundred Days Reform. Most of Guangxu's edicts had not even been carried out yet. He had just issued an order. Um, reform was over. That was it. That was the end of the reform movement. Now, it would return again in an unexpected way, but when it did, the Qing would have to deal with far more than just their own weaknesses. They would have to deal with changes in society and culture that were eroding the very foundations of the Qing system. So that was the end of the reform, end of the self-strengthening movement was when they, they got kicked out.